bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, August 31st, 2010. The Tax Credit Tuesday podcast is brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Each week's podcast features information and news about the new market tax credit, renewable energy tax credits, the historic tax credit, and the low-income housing tax credit. This week, we will review the recently released report from the Tax Reform Subcommittee of the President's Economic Recovery Board. The report specifically addresses the annual cost of the low-income housing tax credit. Then, I'll summarize recently updated guidance released by the Treasury Department regarding recapture under the Section 1602 Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Cash Grant Program. I'll also discuss some upcoming critical deadlines for new market tax credit allocatees. In the NMTC area, I'll also discuss a bill that's being considered in California that would create a state new market tax credit. For the historic tax credit portion of this week's podcast, I'm going to highlight the Maryland Sustainable Communities Rehabilitation Tax Credit Program, which is currently open for applications. We also have several renewable energy tax credit topics, including a report that details the impact of the three major renewable energy subsidies, notably the Section 1603 Payments in Lieu of Tax Credit Program, the Section 48 Cap C Manufacturing Tax Credit Program, and Federal Energy Loan Guarantees. Then I'll close today with some tax credit tidbits. If you're ready, let's get started. Before we discuss the recently released report from the Tax Reform Subcommittee, of the President's Economic Recovery Board, I did want to provide a tax extenders update. This will be brief. As a follow-up to our discussion last week, word has it that Senate Finance staff hope to have a draft extenders bill out by the end of this week. As our listeners know, a couple of weeks ago, we heard that staff wanted to get a draft out by the end of the month. That data slipped to a goal of before Labor Day. We heard that the draft bill will include the extenders that are most concerned to our listeners, including the extension of the Section 1602 LITC cash grant program, extension of the New Market Tax Credit through 2010 with $5 billion in allocation authority, and alternative minimum tax relief for qualified equity investments issued between March 15, 2010 and January 1, 2012. We believe one of the reasons for the delay in the release of an updated extenders bill are efforts to identify acceptable revenue raisers that will allow the extenders bill to be fully paid for. Prior versions of the tax extenders bill were fully paid for, but some of those pay-fors were used to pay for the $26.1 billion state fiscal aid bill that recently became law. Congress is still scheduled to return to Washington, D.C. on September 13th, and we expect that the small business bill will be debated in the Senate first, and hopefully shortly thereafter, consideration will be given to the extenders bill. Stay tuned. We'll provide updates on Twitter and through breaking news emails this week, as issues develop and as developments warrant. We'll also discuss the status of extenders in next week's Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Also yesterday, President Obama mentioned that in the coming weeks, he'll be announcing his support of various tax cuts to stimulate the economy. Stay tuned for updates in that area as well. We'll discuss it in next week's podcast, and we'll send breaking news emails and Twitter updates as it's warranted. 
Now, let's turn to the President's Economic Recovery Advisory Board, or PROB, which held a public meeting on Friday, August 27th via conference call. The meeting was open to the public via live audio stream on the White House website. The purpose of the meeting was to continue discussion of the issues impacting the strength and competitiveness of the nation's economy and to identify ways to balance the budget. The discussion included an update on the research and preparatory work conducted in a PROB subcommittee. PROB has been considering tax reform proposals for more than a year, and last week the tax reform subcommittee presented a report during the meeting on those proposals. The report discusses the pros and cons of a spectrum of reform ideas relating to tax reform without, I emphasize without, taking a position on those ideas. The PROB voted unanimously in favor of presenting the report from the Tax Reform Subcommittee as formal advice to the President. It's important to reiterate that presenting the report to the President does not mean the Board supports any of the proposals included in the document. Now, there are a number of proposals included in the report, but the item of most direct relevance to our listeners is the discussion of reducing or eliminating federal tax expenditures. Now, tax expenditures are generally defined as reductions in income tax liabilities that result from special targeted tax provisions or regulations that provide tax benefits to particular taxpayers. This category does include the low-income housing tax credit, the new market tax credit, historic tax credits, and renewable energy tax credits, as well as similar tax credit and tax deduction programs. Each year, the Joint Committee on Taxation staff actually publishes a report on federal tax expenditures. According to the most recent JCT report, the Joint Committee on Taxation report, the low-income housing tax credit program is expected to cost approximately $30 billion during the five-year period between 2009 and 2013. That $30 billion estimate for LIHTC expenditures includes an upfront charge of $3.4 billion for the estimated cost of the LIHTC cash grant election that was created by the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Without such a cash grant program, the actual cost between 2009 and 2013 would have been less as the Section 1602 program accelerates the 10-year cost of the tax credit. The federal tax expenditure for renewable energy tax credit programs under Sections 45 and 48 are estimated to cost $7.9 billion over the same period. The federal expenditure for the historic tax credit program between 2009 and 2013 is estimated at $3.6 billion, and the new market tax credit under Section 45, Cap D, is estimated at $3.5 billion. In its report, the Tax Reform Subcommittee specifically addressed the loan housing tax credit in the tax expenditure discussion, and it noted that some experts suggest that other federal aid, such as housing vouchers, would assist low-income households at a lower cost. Now, this is an idea that I've debated in the past. If you'd like to hear arguments against this notion, I encourage you to download the Archived Tax Credit Tuesday podcast from November 10, 2009. I'm also discussing tax expenditures and the proposals that are being considered to change federal tax expenditures in my Washington Wire column in the September issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. I think this is an important Washington Wire column, and it does give some insights into what the discussion is going to be in the coming months and possibly years ahead as Congress seeks to close the federal deficit. You can also read this column online at www.novaco.com journal. I look forward to any insights you have on the topic. Please send me an email to michael.novogradic at novaco.com. 
Let's turn now to Long Housing Tax Credit News. There was recently guidance issued by the Department of Treasury regarding Section 1602 recapture. Now, in a survey of all state housing finance agencies that participated in the Tax Credit Assistance Program, TCAP, and the Section 1602 Cash Grant Exchange Program, a survey conducted by the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, the GAO found that those state agencies would like more guidance on recapture. In response to this comment, the Treasury 1602 program team released a guidance document on August 25th that discusses recapture under the Section 1602 program. For any of our listeners or advisors to our listeners who have participated in the Section 1602 program, these recapture guidance rules will be very important. The guidance document defines a recapture event, explains how to determine the amount of funds owed, describes state agencies' obligations to enforce the provisions of the program, discusses due diligence and avoiding non-compliance, it lists possible actions a state agency could take in the event of non-compliance, and the uh, guidance instructs state agencies on how they should report non-compliance. Now, in the guidance, the Treasury Department says that in the event of noncompliance, the state agency has the discretion to work with the building owner to avoid recapture and bring the building into compliance. Treasury provided a list of actions that it says are meant to assist state agencies in determining best practices. Some of those actions are working with sub-awardees to create a plan with milestones and schedules to remedy an instance of noncompliance, looking for a new owner who will bring the building into compliance, sending a written demand notice to the owner requiring repayment in full, or agreeing to a repayment plan if the state agency determines that that is the best means to obtain payment. If, despite the efforts of the state agency, an owner does not bring the building into compliance, or the state agency is unable to find a new owner to take over the building, Treasury says it expects the state agency to take reasonable action to recapture the monies. Reasonable action, according to Treasury, depends on the remedies available under state law as well as the particular facts and circumstances of a given situation. An item that's of particular interest is that the guidance clarifies that if the state agency is unable to collect the recapture amount from the liable party, the Treasury Department would not, that's right, would not require the state agency to return the recapture penalty provided, of course, that the state agency took all appropriate actions to collect the funds. A copy of this guidance can be downloaded from our website at www.taxcredithousing.com. Simply go to the Hot Topics tab in the News menu. Also, questions about Section 1602 compliance can be directed to my partner, Mike Morrison, in Novogratz & Company, San Francisco office. He can be reached at 415-356-8000, or by email at michael.morrison at novaco.com. You can also send an email to cpas at novaco.com. In New Market Tax Credit news, we'd like to remind our listeners of upcoming deadlines for existing New Market Tax Credit allocatees. As our allocatee listeners know, Section 3.2 of the New Market Tax Credit Allocation Agreement sets out the allowable uses of a New Market Tax Credit Allocation for investments or reinvestments. New market tax credit allocatees are generally required under the allocation agreement, notably Section 3.2e of the allocation agreement, to have issued at least 60% of 
of the total dollar amount of the qualified equity investments, or QEIs, related to its numeric contextual allocation by September 30th. So there's generally a 60% by September 30th requirement. This means that allocates who received numeric contextual awards in the fifth round of tax allocation in 2007 must have, must have issued at least 60% of their QEIs by September 30th, 2010. Now that's just one month from the time of this recording, because the general rule is 60% within three years. If allocates think they'll have trouble meeting this deadline, we encourage them to contact the CDFI fund as soon as possible to let them know. Now looking ahead, allocates from the sixth round who were awarded tax credits in 2008 will have this 60% QEI issuance requirement be, need to be satisfied by September 30th, 2011. And seventh round allocates will have to satisfy this requirement by September 30th, 2012. Now, if an allocatee still needs to issue QEIs to meet this requirement, as I mentioned earlier, they're encouraged to communicate the status of any pending commitments to the CDFI fund as soon as possible and open up a dialogue. Any allocatees who have not satisfied this requirement or are unsure of their status are advised to contact the tax advisor as soon as possible. You can also contact Novogratz and Company if you have any specific questions. Similarly, this 60% program becomes 100% within five years. Specifically, the New Market Tax Credit Program regulations and statute require allocates to issue 100% of their QEIs within five years of the date the CDE enters into an allocation agreement. So round three allocates should be aware of this deadline in relation to when they sign their allocation agreements. If you have any questions or if you're uncertain about the status of your QEI issuance, I invite you to call one of my partners or other professionals at Novogratz and Companies various offices throughout the country. You can, you can learn more about the firm's new market tax services online at www.novaco.com. Simply click on the services button and then choose the link to brochures and flyers. If you have any general questions, you can also send an email to cpas at novaco.com and we'll connect you with the appropriate professional to serve you. Now turning to the state of California for a moment, but staying with the new market tax topic, the California State Legislature is considering a California State New Markets Tax Credit. Specifically, on August 12th, Senate Bill 1316 passed out of the Senate Appropriations Committee by a vote of 7 to 4. The bill is authored by Senator Gloria Romero, and it would establish a New Market Tax Credit Program, a program that would be modeled after the federal New Market Tax Credit Program. Senate Bill 1316 provides $44 million in tax credit investments in schools, small businesses, and real estate throughout California in low-income communities in rural and urban areas. That's what it would do if the bill becomes law. Now, the new program would be funded by taxing, for California income tax purposes only, federal Section 1031 tax-free or like-kind exchanges when a building owner transfers a California property in exchange for a non-California property. Now, based on results in other states that have enacted similar programs, supporters of this California New Market Tax Credit say that the advantage of creating a state New Market Tax Credit in California includes the fact that it will help attract more federal New Market Tax Credit investments in California. Supporters expect that the additional investment in California will far exceed the tax cost of the California State New Market Tax Credit. Supporters note that in some states, this ratio has been reported to be as high as 13 to 1. 
Now, at least nine other states have already enacted similar programs that help attract and therefore leverage more federal new market tax dollars to their states. These nine states that we've identified are Ohio, Florida, Missouri, Louisiana, Mississippi, Kentucky, Illinois, Oklahoma, and Connecticut. Now, links to these various state programs can be found online at our website, www.newmarketscredits.com. That's www.newmarketscredits.com. The, the next step is that the bill goes to the Senate floor. Now, if it's successful, it's going to move on to the Assembly. You can find a copy of Senate Bill 1316 online at www.newmarketscredits.com. We'll keep you updated in future podcasts if the bill makes progress and makes its way to the Assembly and hopefully to Governor Schwarzenegger's desk. In historic tax credit news, we want to share some news about the Maryland, the state of Maryland, Sustainable Communities Rehabilitation Tax Credit. It's been in the news lately. We wanted to note that applications are being accepted for a total of $10 million in tax credits for qualified commercial building rehabilitation projects in the state of Maryland. Now, the Maryland Sustainable Communities Rehabilitation Tax Credit Program was created in April with the passage of House Bill 475. The new law replaces the former Maryland Heritage Structure Rehabilitation Tax Credit and expands the tax credit beyond historic building renovations to broader areas of revitalization, including commercial properties and Main Street areas. The new tax credit is also one of the first in the nation to link LEED high-performance green building standards with historic preservation. The tax credit's available for income-producing properties, including office, retail, and rental housing, at different credit levels based on the property type. There's a 20% credit for certified historic structures, a 25% credit for certified historic structures that are high-performance buildings, and that would be LEED, gold, certified, or the equivalent, and a 10% credit for non-historic qualified rehabilitated structures. The total amount of commercial rehabilitation tax credits distributed each year is based on an annual appropriation in the state's operating budget. Now, the Baltimore Business Journal reported last week that the program is garnering tepid interest, even though the state had broadened it to include more projects. We think that this report wasn't quite accurate. Agreeing with us is Rodney Little, the executive director of the Maryland Historic Trust. They administer the program, and they told Novograd and Company that the trust typically doesn't receive 90% of their applications until the last two days before the deadline. So he's not surprised that only a handful of applications have been received at this point. He did acknowledge, though, that they've received fewer inquiries about the program so far this year than in previous years. However, he attributes this dampened interest to the recession rather than the program change. He says, and most of our listeners I'm sure will agree, developers are having trouble finding outside financing that would allow them to take advantage of the credits. Mr. Little encourages developers to consider applying, and he says that for those who are, who are familiar with the past program, that it hasn't changed in any ways that make the program more onerous. He also encourages developers that may be eligible for new components to consider applying. The Maryland Historical Trust will accept commercial rehabilitation tax credit applications up until September 15, 2010. Details about the tax credit, as well as instructions for applying, can be found online at mht.maryland.gov. Also, if you have questions, you can direct them to my partner, Charlie Ruda. He works in both our Boston and our Maryland office. Charlie can be reached at 617-330-1920. That's 617-330-1920. Or send an email to cpas at novaco.com, and we'll forward it on to Charlie.
Now let's turn to renewable energy tax credit news. We have a lot to cover here. First, let's start with a sample annual report that was recently released for the Section 1603 cash grant program. Last week, the Treasury Department posted a sample annual performance report and certification for the Section 1603 Renewable Energy Tax Credit Cash Grant Program. All applicants that receive awards under the Section 1603 program are required to report certain information annually to the Treasury Department for a period of five years. Reports are due annually, and they're due 30 days after the anniversary date of the day the property was placed in service. The form used to submit this report is completed and submitted through the online application system. The Treasury Department says that applicants will receive a reminder notification via email 30 days before the report is due. A copy of the sample report and related information can be found online at www.energytaxcredits.com. We encourage our listeners to submit comments on the form and also forward a CC of those comments to us at Novogratz and Company and you can send it to cpas at novaco.com, and you can also contact my partner, Stephen Tracy, in our San Francisco office. Also last week, speaking of Recovery Act programs and the success of the renewable energy tax credit programs, on August 25th, Vice President Joe Biden unveiled a new report. It's entitled, The Recovery Act, Transforming the American Economy Through Innovation. This report finds that the Recovery Act's $100 billion investment in innovation is not only transforming the economy and creating new jobs, but helping accelerate significant advances in science and technology, advances that cut costs for consumers, save lives, and help keep America competitive in the 21st century economy. The report cites three programs that are driving the manufacturing and deployment of renewable energy technology. These three programs are the Section 1603 Payments in Lieu of Tax Credit Program, the Section 48 Cap C Manufacturing Tax Credit Program, and federal loan guarantees. Looking at the Section 1603 program first, to date, more than $3 billion in payments in lieu of tax credits have been made to more than 500 projects in 44 states, all in support of renewable energy generation projects. These funds support more than 10,000 construction jobs, more than 2,000 ongoing operating and maintenance jobs as well. The report says that the 1603 program leverages $2 of private capital for every $1 of tax credits, and that has brought more than 4 gigawatts of new renewable energy online. Now, in this Section 48 Cap C area, they note that more than $2 billion in tax credits have been allocated to 183 projects across 43 states. These are tax credits for clean energy manufacturing projects. The report notes that competition for the program was more than three times oversubscribed. And like the Section 1603 program, the Section 48 CAPC program leverages $2 of private capital for every $1 of tax credits. And in the third area, namely loan guarantees, the report says that $2 billion in conditional or closed loan guarantees you know, have finished. The funded projects are expected to create or save more than 5,000 construction permanent jobs and lead to more than 3 gigawatts of clean power generating capacity and avoid more than 30 million tons of CO2 per year. The report says that the loan guarantees leverage more than $4 of debt and equity for every $1 of loan guarantee subsidy. If you'd like more information about this report, go to www.energytaxcredits.com. 
And if you have questions about leveraging these programs to develop or invest in renewable energy, give my partner Stephen Tracy a call at 415-356-8000. I'd also like to discuss some energy legislation that was introduced a week and a half or so ago. Specifically, on August 20th, Senator Kent Conrad met with the management employees of Minkota Power Cooperative to discuss legislation that he had introduced to encourage investment in energy from clean coal sources. Senator Conrad's Coal Energy Bridge Act expands the use of clean coal technology and would help set the country on a path to energy independence. The legislation was authored with Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah, and it creates tax incentives to encourage private investment in clean coal technology. More specifically, it creates a 30% investment tax credit for coal facilities that use advanced technologies to capture and reduce carbon dioxide emissions from their facilities. You can find a copy of the bill online at www.energytaxcredits.com. Our last item in the renewable energy tax credit area is a possible legislative fix to remedy the PACE situation. Now, BNA, the Bureau of National Affairs, reported last week that proponents of PACE, which is an acronym for Property Assessed Clean Energy, or PACE, Property Assessed Clean Energy Bond Financing, which is bond financing for energy efficiency retrofits, that they're working, supporters of this program, are working to include a provision in prospective government-sponsored enterprise reform legislation to resolve concerns that the programs pose a threat to home mortgages. Now, as most of our listeners will recall, the PACE program is designed to assist homeowners and small businesses secure funding to make their properties more energy efficient. Property owners repay the cost of energy improvements through, ins- through assessments that are spread out over a decade or more. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have characterized PACE assessments as loans that must be subordinate to their own mortgages. The Federal Housing Finance Agency affirmed Fannie and Freddie's decision on July 6th and urged state and local governments to reconsider and pause, that's right, pause these programs until the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's concerns could be addressed. A provision to clarify the relationship between home mortgages and state or local tax financing that are supported by these PACE bonds was adopted by the House last June, that's June of 2009, as part of the American Clean Energy and Security Act. But that bill has not been addressed in the Senate. We're going to continue to monitor the situation regarding PACE loans, and we'll keep you updated in future podcasts. We close this week with a couple of tax credit tidbits. Now, according to a new audit report that was recently released last week by the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, the Internal Revenue Service has generally processed the initial request for payments of the Build America bond federal subsidies accurately, timely, and without indications of fraudulent or erroneous disbursement. The Build America bonds program was created by the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act and allows the federal government to partially offset state and local governments' cost of paying bond interest. The Treasury Inspector General of Tax Administration reviewed more than $110 million in direct subsidy payments for the initial 80 bond issuances that were requesting these subsidy payments from the federal government. The review revealed that the controls and procedures that have been developed and implemented by the IRS's tax-exempt bonds office assured that all 80 federal subsidy payments were accurate. You can find a copy of this report at www.trej.gov. We also want our listeners to know 
that there are some AHP funds available. AHP funds are affordable housing program funds, and applications are currently being accepted for the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco's affordable housing program. The affordable housing program is one of the largest sources of private funding for the construction and preservation of affordable housing in the country, and is often one of the key bits of layered financing in low-income housing tax credit transactions. The Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco encourages financial institutions that are members of the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco to apply for Round B of the 2010 funding competition. The bank also recommends that interested community groups contact a bank member early in their, process, in their planning process about sponsoring an application. The Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco's community investment staff is available to help identify local members. The deadline for submitting an application for Round B is Friday, October 1, 2010. Round B application materials are available on the bank's website at www.fhlbsf.com. Once again, www.fhlbsf.com. If you'd like more information about submitting an application, I'd encourage you to contact Thomas Stagg or Jim Kroger in Novogratz San Francisco office at 415-356-8000. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. And during the interim, you can stay up to date by following my tweets on Twitter. You can also stay up to date by subscribing to the Novogratz & Company's free, yes, free, breaking news emails both in the areas of low-income housing tax credits, new market tax credits, and renewable tax credits. Simply go to www.novoco.com and you can sign up. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.